changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how are you? I'm all right, thanks, Ed. I am uh, coming to you from Edinburgh, mm-hmm. uh, where I am on day four of doing my show, uh, Big Wendy. Yes, there we go, we're barely into a minute of the podcast, <laughs> and here comes my shameless plug. Yeah, and it's lovely, and Edinburgh is, as ever, alternating between scorching heat and pouring rain. So no change there. And has the uh, experience been good for you so far? I'm, I'm, I, I, is this the first time you've been there as a performer? I, I assume you've been there a bunch of times as a as a punter in the past. I have indeed been a punter many a time in the past. I've done some reviewing. I worked on a box office six years ago for a venue. Um, but this is my first time as a performer doing a full run. And I have to say it's going really well so far, four days in. So <laughs> taking it as it comes. <laughs> is a... Uh... Is it the whole month that you're you're there, or like how long does a run work in uh, Edinburgh? This year, the fringe runs basically four weeks of August. So weirdly, it basically runs until the twenty fifth. I think some people run on until the twenty sixth or the twenty seventh, mm. um, but it's not running until the very end of the month this year. Although last year it did, so it's a little bit as long as a piece of string for lots of different people. Mm. All of August is wide open. Lots of people arrive kind of at the beginning of August, tail end of July. Um, In terms of actually just setting up Edinburgh for the festival, that happens obviously well before. Some people only come for a couple of weeks. So it's it's a kaleidoscope, shall we say. Have you seen anyone uh, especially good so far in your your brief time not on stage? I have to say, uh, well, my hero, Helen Duff, her show Helen Duff is the Tits is a highlight thus far. She describes herself as a socially conscientious feminist clown and I just love everything that she does because so much of her work is very performative but suggestive and it all lies in what is felt rather than what's said necessarily. So she's always worth seeing live. And then I also really enjoyed Beck Hill's new show, I'll Be Beck, which is sort of about time travelling, but I don't want to say much more because... uh, spoilers cool sounds great obviously you you talked about it being a plug earlier but if anyone's listening to this who is going to be in edinburgh or is in edinburgh already then please do go along to uh, to emily's show it's i'm sure it's great thanks guys <laughs> so we'll go on to the news this week and uh it's been kind of a i think a fairly quiet couple of weeks entertainment wise um, suspiciously um, quiet ed <laughs> yes it's like everyone's preparing for something disastrous. That's how I feel always. <laughs> uh, but uh, there were there were a few things. It's the the TCAs at the moment, the Television Critics Association, uh, which uh, always always seems to be going on. It seems I know yeah. other people have made this joke, but when it's happening, it just seems to go on for about six months of the year, and people are constantly going in. It's like doing tours in Iraq or something. Like they have to all schlep their way over to. To California, but uh, there have been some news uh, an- announcements coming out of it. Um, the two that I found most interesting, just because 
uh, it, it, it relates to a, a streaming service which I know exists and I know people apparently watch but I always kind of feel like it's on the, the verge of not existing, which is um, CBS All Access, which I think has had a fair, uh, you know, a decent bit of success with its uh, its Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, and uh, is kind of gearing up for the Picard TV series, uh, which looks very cool, and I got a chill seeing the trailer for. But two of their recent announcements, which I found to be quite interesting, was that they are doing a mini-series, or, or they're doing a, a I think it may just be a, an out-and-out series, as opposed to a mini-series of The Man Who Fell to Earth, the Walter Tevis novel that was adapted into a classic movie starring David Bowie in the 70s, by directed by Nicholas Rogue, which I have some trepidation about because it is being written by, co-written by uh, Alex Kurtzman, who is the one half of the, the team that gave us several tr- truly terrible Transformers movies. <laughs> and I think he was the one who did The Mummy with... It's, it was either him or Orky, the, his, his uh, former part, writing partner. Um, but he, he's not got a great track record as Alex Kurtzman. Yeah. Um, but it's also been co-written with Jenny Lumet, who wrote uh, Rage of Getting Married. Uh, and who I don't think has written a huge amount of other stuff since then. She's one of those people who always has stuff in development, but not much ever seems to come to fruition. But uh, I'd be interesting to see more work from her. And I think that's a... Obviously, the movie's great and the novel's very good, um, but I think there's a lot of interesting stuff you could could do there with that story, you know, of someone... uh, of an alien coming to Earth and... uh, trying to understand the place and you know i think obviously it's been 43 years since the movie came out so there's a lot has changed in that time there's a lot more material they could play with i think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the other one uh, which i'm quite excited about is they're doing a, a new version of the stand as a miniseries on cbs all access yeah. uh which is something that's been mooted for a period of time i believe at one point it was going to be a two-part film adaptation directed by ben affleck after he did uh, argo that was like a project that was doing the rounds for quite a while but it's settled down it's going to be a mini series which probably makes uh, more sense and you know it's probably my favorite stephen king book the stand it's just a really exhilarating apocalypse narrative it's got all these kind of like fun characters that are could be played like really compellingly not a huge amount has been announced in terms of the most significant casting like the character of randall flag who is the kind of the villain who shows up in a lot of stephen king uh adaptations and if they really wanted to to get clever with it they would cast matthew mcconaughey as that character because it's just, <laughs> it's, ba- it's basically the same character that he plays in the dark tower <laughs> in a different yeah. form but uh, they haven't they haven't announced that. But they have announced that uh, Marilyn Manson is going to be in it in a small role, or possibly is the, a, a large role. Who knows? They, he's doing a cover of "The Doors Is the End," which is going to be a the theme song, and apparently he's going to have a role in it as well. Amber Heard is going to be in it uh, as well. But but the character that I'm most in to see who they cast is the character of Harold Lauder, who in the book is the most kind of uh, compelling figure because he's the most conflicted. He's like a a a, a, uh, a frustrated nerd who turns to 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 violence and evil who uh, at the time you know was felt in in like the 70s i think kind of felt like a uh, a, a very forward thinking kind of character and even now you can think oh yeah Stephen king was very pressing in that one <laughs> that, that character probably 
really fits into the the media landscape of of 2019. Yeah, it's horribly. I wonder how many of uh, his ilk will be watching and angrily uh, tapping away on 4chan straight after broadcast. Yeah, but uh, I'm quite excited about that. It seems like it could be, you know, that 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 show would have a fairly epic scope. I think if done well, and if they don't kind of cheap out on it, like the the mini series from the early 90s. And that really does seem to be CBS trying to really break through with with their streaming service, which to now has has done okay, but I think has more done okay because their shows get shown on Netflix elsewhere in the world, yeah. as opposed to them having a great subscriber base here in the US. It's interesting to see other media outlets coming out strong with their own originals. And I think in terms of, yeah, how we're going to see it, whether they'll sell it to Netflix or what, I do feel kind of hopeful and I like their pluck and moxie, you know? Mm. Um, And this does seem like a really interesting cast, like Greg Kinnear's in it as well, Whoopi Goldberg. In terms of people who've been announced, this is also quite early days, even though it's due to shoot kind of like winter to spring, sort of end of this year, beginning of next um, yeah. And I'm so behind on actually reading any Stephen King. But if you're going to adapt any Stephen King book, this seems to be the one for now that seems pretty relevant in terms of your mm. apocalyptic. Yeah, it's it sounds interesting. And I like that Amber Heard's in it, not going to lie. Not so keen on Marilyn Manson, maybe, for, mm. <laughs> for similar reasons. But it seems like the closest you can get to a safe but bold choice, mm, which yeah. isn't necessarily, they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, because I think you will still have a lot of people who you know who are always going to be interested in a Stephen King adaptation, and off the back of It, and with It 2 mm. um, coming out, I think you, there will be a resurgence. I mean, we can talk a lot about <laughs> how well Pet Cemetery did or not, um, but I like that CBS is striding ahead. I I think that's a good thing. Um, And I think, I mean, not to sound too, I don't mean to sound um, pessimistic, (laughs) but I I do think we're coming to a crunch in terms of streaming services and what's being offered. And I Mm. think people are interested in seeing what maybe who the new kind of crop of people who are providing originals are going to be. Um, whether it will mean another subscription package and whether people will be happy to shell out for that if Amazon are kind of coming to a crunch point. I don't know, but I'm intrigued, is what I'll say. Mm, yeah, I think uh, you know, Matt and I talked about in the, the previous episode about Netflix losing subscribers and that's like not the... It's not a death knell for them by any means because they're still you know kind of very large and significant and they've got a lot of money to throw around. But they have also uh, cancelled a lot of shows uh, recently, including Tuga and Bertie, which is uh, was is dreadful considering that show. I don't think it was too expensive uh, to produce, but they they definitely seem to be reaching a point of possible weakness or, or showing that people are losing interest in what they have to offer and you know people may start looking around at other things and it's good for people to be trying to offer people choice and to avoid a situation where you know netflix becomes a monopoly and the only option you know Mm. you have to you have to make people uh 
make people try and do kind of good and interesting things to make the, them worth your time mm. uh, as opposed to uh, just throwing any old shit up <laughs> which yeah. has has worked somewhat for Netflix but I think has also uh, kind of cheapened their brand a fair bit uh, like that they feel very disposable now in a way that probably isn't great for their long-term uh, future in kind of like dominance and, and even a company like Amazon who obviously are kind of massive and omnipresent have had some setbacks as well like a lot of their shows they they announced just like in this past week that they are cancelling too old to die young i think is the Re- nicholas rindig weapon show um i only say that just because I'm, there's like two or three projects that all have a very similar name that are all coming out in like a six month period and i'm pretty sure that that's that one and they also ca- ca- uh, cancelled matthew ween as the romanoffs which mm aired one season last year and basically no one watched so i think that uh these streaming services that have been around for a few years are maybe taking stock and thinking maybe we can't just throw 50 60 million dollars at anything and hoping that it delivers a kind of like madman style cultural touchstone for us mm-hmm. we uh we also uh just just yesterday we lost we we heard that uh the great documentarian D.A. Pennybaker had passed away, who mm. is responsible for some of the best documentaries, the best American documentaries of the, the 20th century, Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan documentary, which obviously, you know, kind of uh, gave us the immortal video for Subterranean Homesick Blues and mm. many wonderfully cantankerous uh, pr- interactions with the press, which uh, are great in themselves and also inspired similar scenes in Walk Hard. So it's doubly great for uh for giving us those uh, scenes of of uh, john c Riley uh, insulting people but uh, he also did the war room one of the great uh, political documentaries he was also someone who uh, it came to uh, Docfest a few times sheffield Docfest, which is obviously a favorite of this show mm-hmm. just a, a a wonderful force for documentary as a form in terms of the work he did but also you know kind of like ad- advocating for it as a as a vital form of filmmaking Absolutely. I think the only thing that gave me a little bit of respite in hearing this news is at the moment, I don't know whether it will change once we've released this, but when you look through um, Penna Baker's filmography on Google, when it shows you the kind of poster of the film and it gives you the title and the year, his filmography, when you first search him, um, Mm. the uh, company, the original cast recording, which he shot, Yes. currently has the documentary now picture oh. with <laughs> the, um, the with John yeah. Mulaney and um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was one of the few things that uh, yeah because it's sad news and that was the one thing that kind of I think he would have appreciated that personally mm. I just uh I we were talking beforehand about how I've been working lots of lots of late nights this week at my job and uh, very often I would just start singing the Paul Appel bit where she's just going, I gotta go and keep forgetting that it's not a real song. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, we can we can quibble about what's real. It feels real to me. She belts yeah. it. Like that's so good. I love that uh, episode. <laughs> that that and uh Tim Robinson singing three stacks on the radio from I think you should leave a two ones where I just think this song's so great. Wait, it's not even a song. Yeah. <laughs> it's just something they made up for, for, for an anthology comedy show. 
but but yes, uh, everyone should watch Co-op. The uh, and and the original documentary is great as well. It's really funny if you want to see uh, Stephen Sondheim kind of really being very persnickety about certain intonations and pronunciations on words as he kind of like coaches his cast through what he wants to say and then if you watch the 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 the, the documentary now it is amazing just how well they captured that element of him in John Mulaney's performance totally we also got some trailers this week some trailers from uh established and exciting filmmakers the probably the biggest of which to also go back to Netflix, which we briefly touched on earlier, is The Irishman, the latest film by Martin Scorsese about uh, Frank Sheeran, a hitman who may or may not have been responsible for the death of, of Jimmy Hoffa and certainly was responsible for the deaths of a lot of other people. Uh, he uh, was the subject of a book called I Hear You Paint Houses, which Scorsese has been trying to make into a movie for for decades at this point you know like i think he's probably been working on it for like 20 years or so it was always his next project like everything he was making it seemed to be the thing he wanted to do next that and his uh like he wanted to do a sinatra movie and a dean martin movie and, and neither of those have come to fruition yet but that this seemed like one that uh he just couldn't get the money to make but largely because he wanted to invest in digital de-aging technology so that he could cast people who are way too old to play all the characters um which has got much uh discussion uh from the, the the images that appear in the trailer but it was a big thing when he went to netflix because they were clearly willing to kind of like throw enough money to for the uh prestige of having the latest scorsese and being the ones who say we finally made the irishman even if it bleeds us dry and yeah. costs like 150 million dollars or whatever the film ended up costing but I am quite excited for it. I like, you know, I, I love Scorsese generally and uh, I, I find anything he does very interesting. But yeah, it's very weird watching that trailer and seeing the de-aged De Niro, which is kind of in that Uncanny Valley thing where you think it's not like ludicrously bad compared to, you know, if you look at when they de-aged Patrick Stewart for X-Men 3. Mm. But it's still not quite there and it probably won't matter too much when, you know, if the movie's good, you'll watch it and it will be just slightly distracting. But uh, in trailer form, it is a little bit uh, unsettling. It's not great. It looks like L.A. Noir. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was really into it and I think there are some really beautiful kind of vivid images, like just that car going through the car wash and kind of how it manages to be sort of really deep colours, but kind of desaturate at the same time with all the foam mm. washes kind of slapping over it. And looking at the cast, I mean, it's great. Like, anything that has Jesse Plemons, Anna Paquin and Stephen Graham in it, happy Emily. Yeah. But yeah, uh, sad that Action Bronson may not actually be in it. I love him. Um, so <laughs> or maybe he's in a, in a small part. I don't know, hard to say. Um, but yeah, I just, I don't see why you would, you would hold on I mean, $200 million is, is you know, much more on the higher end at the scale of a budget. And, and what, mm. is it something like, for, I'm trying to find an actual set figure as to how much the, DA, the de-aging process itself cost, but they Probably eventually wrapped at $200 million, yeah. which is the most expensive film that Scorsese's made yet. Um, mm. So God knows what proportion of that has gone into what maybe a few scenes. And I just think like, we don't need to see 
De Niro and Pacino and Pesci younger. We know what they look like younger. Mm. And that's the problem. You're just going to be comparing it and being like, well, that's not how they look. I don't see yeah. why you wouldn't give three actors a shot to do something different because you will be able to find people who look plausibly like them. Like, that's what, um, I mean, you can um, you can criticise the Star Wars prequels as much as you like, but Solo, it's like, okay, I can see how you turn into Harrison Ford. Yeah. You know, I yeah. think just like a bit more imaginative casting rather than like ploughing so much of your budget and holding up the film that you said you wanted to make for years and years. Anyway, I don't know. The thing is, is that I've been, this is um, confession time, I've been failing horribly on my SRS 52 challenge of uh, mm. watching 70s films, um, many of which are Scorsese's. And I tried to watch Mean Streets, Ed, and I really struggled with it. I really did. I, wa I wanted to um, get into it, and I couldn't. Um, some beautiful cinematography, don't get me wrong. But already just watching The Irishman, I was like, well, you know, this is the kind of film I can imagine watching with my dad on a rainy Sunday afternoon. And it looks like it'll go at a clip. Um, there's some really nice um, looking shots in it. I don't know. I don't feel like it's going to be as spectacular as the marketing is making out. Um, but it, it'll be nice to see Scorsese's passion project, even though the problem is, is that my favourite Scorsese film is The Age of Innocence and no one's going to change my mind on that. So that's where I stand. Yeah, he, he, I do find it very funny that he has basically been like, I've been trying to make this movie for 20 years and I'm going to stick to the cast I had in mind then. Yeah. Uh, it'd be like if when he made Gangs of New York in 2002, he was like, okay, I'm going to make it, but it's going to star The Clash because that's who I wanted to star <laughs> when I wanted to make it in 1978. Yeah. Uh, which would have been funny if you cast like Joe Strummer months before his death. Uh, playing like the young Leonardo DiCaprio role um, but yeah I mean it, it's I, I am always interested in like seeing filmmakers who are like fairly late in their careers and by I, I don't think that like you can necessarily even say that Scorsese's even close to the end of his career because he just is constantly working he could probably knock out another like four or five films before he hangs it up but for for them to finally get to make the thing that has been an obsession for them for a long time. It's just interesting to kind of think, okay, how does this fit into the broader context of your work? Does it feel like it was worth it? And uh, that, that alone kind of has me, has me excited. And, and also because uh, on the back of uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's quite, quite nice to see Al Pacino in kind of like a big mainstream quality film again. And, you know, to kind of to do two back to back and doing a performance in this one, which feels very subdued compared mm. to what we're, we're used to from him. Uh, maybe he's just tired. <laughs> maybe that's just the, the key is just to kind of like wear him out after a long day of filming. But uh, it, it does feel uh, there, there is something quite exciting about seeing Pesci and De Niro and, and Pacino together, even if uh, it is under this kind of like, weird uh distracting digital de-aging mm. one of the other trailers that you and i are both very very excited about is robert eggers the lighthouse the follow-up to the witch uh starring robert pattinson willem dafoe and a lighthouse yes uh, <laughs> uh and that's more or less it is guys the, the trailer is incredibly entertaining you know it's just just them 
bickering in a lighthouse, wondering how long they've been there, seeming to kind of like fall apart and just in this beautiful four by three aspect ratio, kind of real stark black and white cinematography. There, there is a certain uh, extent to which you're looking at it and thinking this is almost a parody of what people on film yeah. Twitter will like. But uh, at the same time, it does look really fun. And I do like both those actors. I like how much Willem Dafoe is going for it. Like he is full on sea captain yeah. <laughs> in his kind of vocal performance. And Pattinson is, is kind of like a wonderful physical performer as well. So it looks like he's having a, a, a really good time. And I just like how much the trailer doesn't really tell you anything about what the movie's about. It just just says there's a lighthouse and these two guys are in it. And that that uh, sense of mystery and unease alone is uh, really exciting to me. Absolutely. It sets the tone perfectly in terms of what you're going to be immersed in. But there's no sense of what the plot could actually be. I mean, maybe the plot could end up being quite thin and we just... Uh, you know, devolve into madness and that's it. But remember, this is being, um, I think, produced as well as distributed by A24. Um, yeah. And I think A24 are absolute marketing geniuses. I mean, when we look at um, how they've treated Ari Aster's past couple of films, they are brilliant at being able to set the tone and elucidate exactly what kind of horror that you are expecting, but also withholding mm. an awful lot of what actually happens event-wise in the plot and twists and things. Um, I think A24 maybe need to diversify a little bit unless they just want to become millennial horror. I mean, fine, if that's what they are. But I'm, at this point, I'm like, do you guys do other things? I don't know. If this is just what you do and you do incredibly well, fair play to you. Um, mm. I think the cinematography looks absolutely stunning. Like, the, the depth and range of the use of black and white is incredible. And I think maybe there might be a slight kind of um, hint in terms of what could happen uh, regarding uh, Willem and Robert, uh, given their character names, uh, as mm. Defoe is Thomas Wake and Robert Pattinson is the incredibly named um, Ephraim Winslow. So maybe there's something about awakening, maybe there's something about triumphing finally i don't know um but yeah it just looks um super evocative and it's a really simple premise that's kind of based in novels and yeah like like you say ed it's kind of everything that cinephiles kind of love and i do pity the um girls of freshers week in weeks to come when a guy corners them at a party and he's like, have you seen The Lighthouse? I'm really into film. And she's like, yeah, I'm, I'm on the same course as you. Um, I'm quite familiar with it. Thank you. So it could, it could become a horror film in, in different levels. But I'm, 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 I'm up for it. I'm, I'm into seeing it off the back of that trailer, I have to say. Mm, as, as am I. And our final kind of trailer in this little roundup is Sam Mendes' 1917, a... Uh, action thriller set in World War One, seemingly with a bit of a uh, Saving Private Ryan-y kind of twist where the, the main character's brother is in danger and they need to go and save him. And uh, my main takeaway watching it was it kind of continued Sam Mendes' uh, uh, progression into becoming kind of like diet Christopher, Christopher Nolan, uh, right down to the fact that the trailer very 
uh, noticeably uses like a ticking clock, which is not something that, that Christopher Nolan uh, has a, any kind of uh, monopoly on, but certainly in the wake of like Dunkirk, which was all about a ticking clock in time and was set during a kind of a great global conflict of the 20th century. It was kind of weird watching that and thinking, you know, in light of this, in light of what Mendes did with the, the, the two Bond films that he directed, which had a very kind of Batman-like feel to them. Uh, yeah, it kind of, it felt very strange that this is what he his follow-up to Spectre is. I absolutely loved the trailer, I have to say. I was not at all interested by the sound of the premise. And mm. I know there's the shadow of Christopher Nolan given Dunkirk, but this immediately seems somehow, I don't know, the trailer is similar to The Lighthouse for me as an experience of watching it because mm. it is, even though um, 1917 has a huge cast and it's got all of your kind of tick box um, favourites such as Cumberbatch and Firth, yeah. it does seem essentially to be a two-hander between the incredible George Mackay and uh, the mm. newcomer whose name... Dean Charles Chapman, who's only like yeah. 22 or something nuts like that. And you can see it. And that's the thing that I thought was really powerful um, about 1917 is how young, like they've, they've cast well in terms of a First World War film as to how young the majority of the soldiers are, which is horrific. And I think actually gets across how awful that was. Um, and I think there's something less... I mean, obviously, it's going to try and get in for awards season. Mm. Yeah, it's got a December release date, which really kind of positive. It has a limited release on Christmas Day. Um, oh. And then the wider release is on my 30th birthday. So Wow. Woo-hoo, woo-hooh, I know what I'm doing to celebrate my fourth decade beginning. Um, <laughs> but I think um, it doesn't seem to be intentionally grabbing for me like mm. because it does seem to be playing it more like a thriller and not yeah. in a already the tone of the trailer does not seem to take away from the emotional impact like already one of the first images we see is George Mackay like walking through an empty bunker and he sees a family's you know this this abandoned bed and there is a mm. photo of the family and then there's some kind of attack and i think already the premise seems to encapsulate what the First World War was for that lost generation, which was boys essentially being sent to cabin to be cannon fodder, um, yeah. and to have far too much responsibility thrust upon their shoulders and everything being lost. And and the trailer is brilliant because it very clearly sets up: if you do not get this message in time, there will be a massacre. I mean, mm. fuck. Um, and again, we have no sense of what is going to happen. There's some incredible shots. In terms of where it was filmed, it was on like County Durham and Govan in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. One of the co uh, the co-writer, Christy Wilson-Cairns, who co-wrote with Sam Mendes, is a Glasgow native herself. Mm -hmm. He was also written Last Night in Soho, um, Edgar Wright's, which Edgar Wright's currently filming, I believe. Um, mm. and, it, and, it, and it looks horribly real. I mean, the, the trailer is quite disturbing, so I feel yeah. like we should put that out there because there's lots of kind of bodies about in a way that I wasn't expecting that's incredibly raw and affecting. 
um, I yeah, I was not interested in this film at all until I saw the trailer. So maybe it's great marketing again. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There are rumours going around, Ed. Can you confirm or deny? I Reading about it, apparently this might be filmed in one shot. The entire film? Yes. Uh, I haven't heard that rumour. It would be immensely impressive if they they have pulled that off uh or even if it's just you know the the revenant style Mm. stitched stitched together and made to seem like a handful of shots as opposed to uh but yeah like if if it wasn't an entire shot i would uh, that would be an amazing achievement and uh quite grueling (laughs) for everyone involved absolutely Uh, i mean yeah no i'm I'm on board. And also, of course, Roger Deakins is back to um mm. as as um cinematography. So yeah, I'm I'm totally down for this. Everyone join me on my thirtieth birthday. Let's get popcorn. <laughs> you can you can really see some of that Deakins uh uh touch in like all the use of shadow, particularly when you know the, there's the bit where uh Colin Firth at the end of the trailer is saying like good luck and he's almost completely in shadow and it's very foreboding and yeah. uh, very impressive. Um yeah, I, I am I'm quite interested in the movie largely because World War One is somewhat under covered when it comes to like modern dramatic movies. Um I was looking up earlier today just like what how many movies there are based in World War One and funnily enough, a lot of movies based during World War One from like nineteen seventeen through to the late nineteen thirties. But then the numbers kind of precipitously drop off because everyone starts making World War Two movies. And uh I'm I'm always interested to see someone try and do something new with that conflict because I think it, you know, it gets overshadowed a lot by kind of the bloodshed of World War Two, both in you know broader history but in, in drama and entertainment as as well and it's interesting this coming on the the back of the peter jackson they shall not grow old documentary last year which i think for a lot of people who saw that who weren't really like necessarily familiar with world war one as they are with world war two i think uh, it, it could really be eye-opening mm-hmm. for a lot of people right? the, the the sheer bloodshed and horror of that conflict so our, we'll go on to our main topic this week, and it is movie stardom and what it means now. This was uh, inspired largely by an article in The Hollywood Reporter about Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, in the run-up to the release of Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it is a kind of a very, uh, I would say... Glowing is probably a understatement for, for that article. It's very positive about about DiCaprio in general, about Leonardo DiCaprio in general, and, and this idea of him being something of like the, the last movie star, the one of the, the last people in American filmmaking who can really get people to kind of like leave their house to go and see a movie, even if the premise might not necessarily seem commercial or it's not based on a franchise. He's someone who hasn't really, you know, he doesn't do sequels. He doesn't do superhero movies. He doesn't have any kind of like franchise to his name. And the idea of him being, almost him being a franchise in and of itself. And uh, I, so I wanted to talk about uh, that article and our responses to it, but also the question of, you know, what is movie stardom now? Because I do feel as if, you know, one of the big things, developments the last 20 years or so is that you know people often talk about 
the end of the star system as as or, or the end of star power as being a thing that could drive movies compared to even as recently as the the mid 90s when tom cruise could power something like a few good men to hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office will smith could be in pretty much anything and it would make 100 million and how a lot of those older stars struggle and newer stars who are famous and are very well known because they're in big successful franchises largely fail to make that transfer to people seeing them in other things I hated this article. Ed. <laughs> could you could you hear me just seething after your very diplomatic, um, informative intro? Um, mm. Oh God, I felt like there should have been. I'm still scrolling, looking on the Hollywood Reporter uh, link for it online to find where it says um, paid advertisement because mm. it doesn't feel like journalism to me. Sure, it's yeah, just a fluff piece. And there are interesting parts in it, don't get me wrong. Like, and I'm not I'm not trying to say that celebrating a certain cultural figure is not journalism. There just seems mm. to be zero balance here whatsoever. There's nothing and I and I'm not saying that balance is like, oh, but someone said he was a prick to them once. It's it's just kind of there doesn't seem to be a sense of curiosity mm. at all. It's just like, hey, Here's all the money that these films made, therefore. And here, here's everyone saying nice things about him who works with him. Which to me just feels mm. a little bit like, mm, I don't know. Because I feel like on the eve of the release, the sort of wider global release of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I felt like a lot of people, critically anyway, in critical circles, are a bit like, oh, well, Tarantino, I guess. <laughs> and I feel like this has been a kind of, weirdly meta boost to be like mm. oh well look at our our golden boy um there's the phrase flash forward 22 years later which was i think the first point where my lips really pursed um and i still don't feel like we we it actually delves into why dicaprio is like this other than he's a great guy he's been around for a long time he doesn't really use social media to promote himself. He does it to promote the environmental causes he's interested in. You know, he brings his mum to all of his premieres. And the figures are phenomenal in terms of the 10 most recent films he's made. In this Hollywood Reporter article, going back to 2006 to 2015, all of his films broke above kind of double figures of the millions and in total have grossed $3.3 billion right mm. and yes none of them are inherently franchises but he's always playing a sort of hero in a way there's no there's no range i mean you could argue django unchained is a departure but he comes in for a little bit um and he did actually this article shows how he actually works with tarantino and is kind of saying basically you should give me the part because i think this guy isn't a crusty 60 year old plantation owner i think he's more like caligula whilst rome burns which is interesting mm. and it's not to say that he doesn't have his own creative input but i just came out of it being like i still don't understand why and it's very disparaging of other people looking at like i think there's a line in it where it says something like whilst will smith is working on netflix originals and something disparaging about jennifer lawrence and i'm like 
Yeah, it says she's on a cold streak. Yeah, and it's like, oof, really? I mean, not to say that DiCaprio hasn't had his blunders, maybe? Um, And I just find what's most disturbing about this is is this line of, like, he's a good guy, somehow he's squeaky clean. And I'm like, anyone who uses their social media to solely promote their environmental concerns is probably trying to direct you away from, you know... I mean, what we should also look at to compare and contrast on the graphs is the side-by-side of the $3.3 billion grossing films that he's made over the past decade and a bit, along with um, The Age of His Girlfriends. Mm, Yeah, Um, which I feel is like the thing most discussed about him over the last couple of weeks. You know, like the the two strands online are... He's very, he's very good in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Also, yeah, he, he dates a lot of very, very young girls. They're half his age. And Twitter has been brilliant about this in terms of like, oh, you know, where you know where are his girlfriends now? It's like they can probably come and see one of his films without a guardian. <laughs> you know, and uh, I can't help but find that sinister. So, so, for, so it, this article just feels blinkered and mm, I can't help but... Very myopic completely a myopic biopic if you will ed and i just there are a few things that interest me less than the sound of once upon a time in hollywood um i'm interested in the meta kind of ramifications of having brad pitt and leonardo dicaprio together um playing you know star and and stunt double but i think there just seems to be a complete from what I've gathered, a complete lack of charm, tact. I'm not interested in a revisionist history of the Mason family and Polanski in particular, unless we go full-blown inglorious bastards about it. I don't know. I think I understand how DiCaprio himself is the franchise, having, you know, since 97 and Leo Mania and Titanic and this kind of boyish charm. But there doesn't seem to be any kind of retrospective curiosity and journalism in terms of like yeah he was 19 in what's eating gilbert grape where he was alongside another of hollywood's golden boys johnny depp um mm-hmm. essentially playing someone disabled where he's and he was nominated for an oscar for that but there's no sense of like well maybe that's not the best thing now there's there's no it, yeah. it just feels completely out of time completely out of the world it's a fluff piece and oh my god ed stop me sorry i'm ranting (laughs) no i I don't think you're right in terms of it being like you say it's it's blinkered it it does not it's fairly incurious about the things about leonardo dicaprio as a as a persona that aren't directly related to the fact he has been in a lot of very successful movies but at the same time, that is kind of like the one of the key gauges, I think, of what a movie star is, which is like the, the, the thing about it that interested me less so than, you know, the weird digs uh, to all of these other stars that it kind of felt like, uh, felt, felt a little unwarranted. Mm. Um, especially in the case of like Jennifer Lawrence, where you kind of like, the, <laughs> seeming to refer to her as almost like a has-been. I'm like, she's like 28 or something. <laughs> she's got time. She's got time to turn it around, you know, and like not every uh, every movie star has their run of success. In fact, you know, DiCaprio had a fairly not great kind of period in the, the early 2000s, you know, between the success of 
Gangs of New York and Catch Me If You Can, you know, there was a run where he was in like Revolutionary Road, which didn't do very well, Blood Diamond, which went nowhere. You know, they're, they're, he's he's not someone without missteps. So the, the fact he has, he's on a run of consistency now, you know, it, it seems like a, a weird thing to use to, to beat people who are, you know, younger than him at a point in their career where, you know, they are maybe, you know, kind of allowed to, to make misjudgments in terms of their projects and, you know, have plenty of opportunities to do something else, you know. Yeah. Um, the thing about it that, you know, is kind of interesting to me is the framing of him not necessarily as the last movie star because there are plenty of people out there who are kind of like well-known and can get people to watch their movies, but certainly the last of a, a particular old style of movie style which is someone who has a you know kind of like they, they they describe it as his brand being excellence but in in it but really that's in some respects that is a way a summation of what being a movie star was for for many many generations was this idea of you went to see someone who you know like a Cary Grant or something where you kind of knew what you were going to go and get if you want to see went to see a Cary Grant movie you knew what kind of performance he was going to get you kind of had a sense of the tone of the movies, even if they were by different directors, even if they were in diff- different genres, the fact that he was in it gave you a sense of like, okay, it's probably going to be quite fizzy and really enjoyable and you'll kind of walk away having had a good time. And that's not necessarily the case with Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, you know, I had a fully miserable time watching The Revenant. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, it's still... But but there is still a sense of him like, if he does a movie, then, you know, people feel like it's worth seeing you know it's something that you need to to get out and check out because he's a someone that people find uh interesting and and again also like one of the problems with the article is i don't really feel like it makes any attempt to explain why people find him interesting like they just say he's intense or whatever yeah. and like yeah he is intense but there's not really anything in there in terms of like evaluating why his performances which i do feel vary a little bit over the course of his career like there's a marked difference between what he does in cash me if you can versus what he does in the departed or shutter island they're, they're still recognizably performances being by given by him because you know there, there is there are certain qualities that he brings from role to role but the, that article isn't really interested in those uh so it's kind mm. of it's, it's a kind of a very flawed piece of writing in that, that respect but for for me, it does ring true the notion that he is the the, the social media stuff, whether or not it's the, a distraction, or whatever. It does feel very out of step with what people conventional wisdom tells you movie stardom is in yes. twenty nineteen, which is you're meant to be on Instagram, you're meant to be like sharing tweets all the time, you're meant to be like tweeting out positive reviews of your work, you're meant to be engaging with like late night games you went to go on jimmy fallon and kind of or go on carpool karaoke there's this constant sense of you have to be engaging everyone you have to be making the most of your reach and there is this shift away from the notion of of mystique of a carefully crafted persona that goes out into the world and in in kind of classic hollywood was often buoyed by like the fan magazines that were out there that were very much about boosting certain stars and uh studios covering up any transgressions they made towards this kind of 
kind of very controlled openness, I guess. This idea of you curating how the world sees you, but offering as much of yourself as it is possible for you to offer because people want to feel like they know you and that kind of connection is what's meant to drive people to your to your movies. Whether or not it works is a, another question entirely, but yeah. that, that is kind of what movie stardom has become. Yeah, that's the level of expectation now, like you say. Whether it's actually successful or not is another question. And I think we're still navigating how much that actually works or not. And I think actually in terms of the music industry, that's probably... You can you can track a bit more in terms of a personal relationship, and then people will. Oh, I've forgotten the proper word. Parasocial relationship, and then you'll go to live shows and buy merchandise and listen on Spotify, but also get the vinyl, all this kind of stuff. But I think there's a the, the quote that is interesting in the article is where uh, Scorsese talks about you know raves about Leo DiCaprio saying like oh you know he's got this stage presence and he looks like a silent movie star. I don't mm. see it personally, Marty. But you're right, Ed. There is this kind of we've got this overlap of stars who rose up in like Gen X sort of era and then the sort of more like millennial crop or if your audience is starting to, you know, millennials are not necessarily cash rich, but they're still more interested in spending on cultural experiences because you can't afford houses or, or to get married or have kids or anything. <laughs> Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing about, DiCaprio is though I think we just have to keep looking back at 97 Hmm. and Titanic and never underestimate the power of teenage girls yeah teenage girls made DiCaprio because even now you look on Pinterest or whatever there's still all of those photos of him like pushing himself away from all of these hysterical um, fans with roses being thrust in his face as he's like you know fresh faced himself that's still such an iconic image from the 90s and that real cusp of where celebrities started to take form in the 90s and teenage girls made DiCaprio and DiCaprio's certainly trying to give it back his own way, which I completely disagree with. But it's not... <laughs> I still feel like it's not necessarily him. He hasn't fucked it up enough mm. that he hasn't come down. And I... I, and again, this is incredibly personal. <laughs> I've never found him to be a particularly charismatic or engaging actor. I personally have never got it. But in terms of how he holds himself, he is still very private and doing that very kind of, um, you know, the, the idea that he's not using his social media for self-promotion, bullshit he's using it for self-promotion to show that he is someone who is interested in environmental (laughs) causes. And he Mm. backs it up with, you know, financing films. I don't know how much he actually does in terms of charity work. That's on me in terms of research, but it's, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly cynical when it comes to, you know, if you still have a social media presence, you are self-promoting. Yeah. Yeah. There is definitely, uh, an element of that, like he, like again, that idea of his brand is excellence. It, 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 it is geared towards the idea of like, oh, Leonardo, like you say, Leonardo DiCaprio, he's a good guy, yeah. and there is a level at which someone constantly doing that makes you suspicious of them. <laughs> and think. also, you know, uh, I mean, twenty million dollar paycheck for every film, and yeah. he and he, you know, only, only five million for, for Marty. Yeah, 
I mean, oh God, what a great guy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but what? Yeah. But I, I think also it's interesting in terms of, of him and, you know, like social media that he uh, stands out as someone who, you know, became a star in the 90s who hasn't felt the need to change that. Whereas someone like Will Smith, who's mentioned in the article, and Tom Cruise, you can really see that they have adapted to the new idea of stardom in a major way through his Instagram stories, Tom Cruise, like, you know, going on Twitter with Christopher McQuarrie to talk about motion smoothing, you know, like trying to engineer viral moments and really understanding that for pe- to get people interested in their work, you have to play the game a little bit. And mm. I feel like uh, Leonardo DiCaprio does feel like one of the few people who is, you know... And, and again, it was all, there's this kind of like very curated feel to him in that he doesn't work that often. Like, he made, like this is his first movie in four years. Before then, he, was, he like would occasionally make two movies a year, but usually there'd be a few gaps... He doesn't do work on TV ever. He hasn't he hasn't been in a TV show since he left Growing Pains in the early nineties. There there is definitely a sense that the success of Titanic, you know, really does afford him the luxury to do that sort of thing. Mm. Like, not not merely just financially, because I'm sure he's doing well from any residuals that he gets from that, because it's probably not off television since then. But also just in the sense of that gave him the freedom to work with whoever he wanted. You know, immediately after that, he made Celebrity with Woody Allen, which is very much a movie where he, yeah, but but he there, there he is already trying to push against the image of him as this kind of like teen idol while playing this like incredibly narcissistic movie star. Much of his, I would say his struggles in like the mid 2000s was of him trying to really push very hard against the teen idol image and it coming across a little false when he was like trying to be play these like adult movie stars but he still had that like uh, playing these like adult characters but still having that kind of babyish quality to him Mm. that kind of made them made it feel weird which is why for a long time the only performance of his that I really liked until maybe up until Django was his performance in Catch Me If You Can where the whole thing is like oh yeah he's like this boyish charismatic guy who's able to kind of con people because he's able to present a certain uh, childishness and a kind of uh, to the world which you know, kind of like is a, it feels like a very meta thing in terms of how his, his career generally has unfolded uh, but yeah yeah he, he definitely feels like someone who was very fortunate in being in what for a long time was the most successful film of all time, uh, which is not necessarily something that a lot of his other compatriots from that time had, you know, they're like they're, they're, they were in successful movies, obviously Tom Cruise and Will Smith, very, very successful were in some really, really huge hits, but they were quite further along in their careers. And I feel like there is a certain sense of inertia at that point where you have to keep working, you have to keep doing stuff. And eventually, if you're working at that sort of pace, if you are still doing like one or two movies a year, you're going to make a couple of bad movies. People are going to start losing interest. The checks are going to dry up. Whereas if you are in Titanic, you're, you know, like the biggest star in the world at that point, then 
you have the luxury to say, okay, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to make one movie every couple of years. And that movie is going to become an event because people know, oh, he doesn't make a lot of movies. Mm. Where, as opposed to, whereas the, the, the paradox in some way of movie stardom is you kind of have to keep your name out there so that people don't forget you. But if you're constantly keeping your name out there, it devalues yeah. your brand and people feel like uh, it's just another like 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 you're seeing like a little bit maybe with with Dwayne, Dwayne Johnson. Like mm. he's in so many movies now because he's, you know, he's, he made a huge amount of money being added to the Fast and the Furious franchise and Jumanji was a huge hit. But with something like Hobbs and Shaw, which has just come out, which has done okay, you know, it like made sixty million dollars in its opening weekend, but that's pretty low by Fast and Furious standards. Yeah, um, and I think you you see that pattern. I think um, Jennifer Lawrence had that where she was kind of saturating the market for a bit, which again is no fault mm-hmm. of any actor because you can't actually necessarily choose when a film that you shoot a couple of years ago, you know, it might come out like you say, a couple of years later um, or immediately. I think Ryan Gosling had that as well. And sometimes mm. they sort of settle back and then come back in. It is a very strange balance. And it's it's hard to say. Like, I think particularly now, I, I would say that there's been a resurgence. I think just as we were looking over the Oscar kind of campaign and then ceremony this year, there's kind of been a... Um, rejuvenated appreciation for a certain sense of humility like looking at mm. uh, Rich D. Grant and Olivia Coleman and Lady Gaga yes I think all three of them had this kind of um oh my god this is still so special and I think that's really nice seeing people not taking it for granted um and I think in that way that like I say, rejuvenates a sense of magic in the movies beyond the kind of cynicism and beyond the kind of capitalist, like, I'm an individualist and I've fucking done it and I deserve this um, kind of way. I think that's actually going to tap in with audiences more, that there is some kind of humility still left in the industry. Mm, yeah. Who do you think, looking at the the kind of like the, not necessarily younger generation, because like some of the people I have in mind are people who are already in their like, late 30s and Mm. 40s but certainly like people who have emerged in recent years as kind of like draws who do you think of and think that is that's a movie star as opposed to i think what you see with like say say someone like a robert downey jr who is is very famous Mm. (laughs) he's in some of the most successful movies of all time but i would hesitate to consider a movie star in the traditional sense because like he basically has only been in Marvel movies since two thousand and eleven, maybe like whenever the whenever that movie he did with Zach Galifianakis came out. He he is basically in successful movies when he's Iron Man, but he doesn't necessarily draw people to his other projects. Mm. Um, and that's true, I think, as well. Someone like a Chris Hemsworth, who or Chris Evans, uh, or Chris Pine, <laughs> all mm. the Chris's, okay. they are they're like much much beloved. Uh, in their own ways but you know unless they're in a big blockbuster franchise you know they don't necessarily draw people to cinemas in in the way that you would think for me, a movie star does yeah I think for me then in that case if we're looking at someone who's kind of not necessarily in a franchise um, I think for me it's the Fanning sisters mm. I think both Elle and Dakota are stunningly talented mm-hmm. 
pick really interesting projects. Yeah. Manage to be kind of present and sign of a good picture. I, I'm just really interested in everything that they do. And literally everyone else I'm thinking of, it's hard to see anyone who hasn't at least started in a franchise. I think going back to what we were talking about The Lighthouse earlier, I think it's really exciting to see Robert Pattinson, uh, his career evolve. But Kirsten Stewart, similarly, mm, you know, yeah. how, how they're both being like, no, we're, we're actually actors. We're not just teen. <laughs> we hit it out the park as teen heartthrobs, actually. Thank you very much. And again, do not underestimate the power of teenage girls. <laughs> I think that's it. And maybe that's it. Maybe having seen Dakota and Elle as teenage girls and as they're growing into, into women and still picking really interesting projects, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing them grow. I think also, I think Amy Adams is an absolute class act. I think mm, she is someone yeah. who focuses on work and um, has that old school element of like she's her private life isn't really splashed about much but she does engage with the media and, and very graciously um which mm. is a testament to her character because there's plenty of times where <laughs> the media do not deserve to be treated <laughs> engaged with graciously um jessica chastain as well i know i'm talking about a lot mm. of white women here and that is also a big thing <laughs> yeah i think i think they're the handful that immediately spring to mind yeah i think for me someone who i think feels like a like a movie star in in that sense of like they have a a a, a persona that transfers from film to film and they are able to draw audiences to their projects someone like melissa mccarthy kind of feels like mm, that to me i love her like she is like she has a, a big following like they don't go to everything that she does obviously um uh, can you ever forgive me was like not a massive success i mean it did okay for like a, a small art house movie but it wasn't like everyone was like oh this mccarthy's in a new movie let's let's get it to 50 million dollars or whatever the happy time murders didn't do very well but i think that was very much like a everyone was like you don't really want to see sweary puppets you know mm. it's just it's just not what we're in uh, we're uh into but she was in a movie from like last year called the life of the party which as far as i can tell was like a more or less just a, a, a remake of Back to School, the Rodney Dangerfield movie, which got like fairly middling reviews, didn't really seem to make much of an impact, but still made it to like $65 million in the US. And that to me is like a sign that someone has that kind of a draw and that kind of an audience, a connection to an audience where a, a movie can come out, the trailer's not that great, but people like them so much, they'll be like, yeah, sure, why not? I like I like Melissa McCarthy. I'm, I, I'll happily go and see her in something. Uh, I think Kevin Hart has a little bit of that as well. Mm. Um, obviously, he built up his whole audience, you know, through his, his stand-up and had been around for a long time. He's, he's been working fairly consistently for, like, probably two decades at this point to reach the point where he is. But... He, you know, he was in that movie Night School with Tiffany Haddish last year, which was a very similar thing to Life of the Party, where it was a movie that barely seemed to exist, but yeah. just the fact that they were both in it got it to like 70-something million in the US. And he as well has a very, very specific persona that carries over from uh, from movie to movie. Dwayne Johnson, we mentioned earlier as well, I think has has some of that as well. Yeah, those are the ones to me who I think of, like if you would say who fulfills the definition of a movie star, not only in terms of persona and 
you know this this sense of a a brand that continues from movie to movie but also just in the sense of can they convince people to go and see more or less anything they're in here's a question they, they kind of fulfill that sorry ed here's a question it's okay can you imagine the same Hollywood Reporter article um, being written, but about Adam Sandler instead? Uh, probably not. Even though I think he probably, I don't, I don't know, because he's because he's he's a Netflix guy now. Now. So, but like a couple of years ago, I could have seen, like, like he definitely would have fulfilled my definition of of a movie star. But until you know, like he had a run of movies that just didn't do terribly well and and shifted to netflix Mm. i still think in terms of that steady dependable product i don't know and i'll still always have the softest spot for him because of punch drunk love Mm. yeah i'm very excited to see him in uncut gems as well the 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 new safties yeah i like i like that he is branching out a little bit Mm. And we end this episode as we end all our episodes with Shot and First Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Would it be all right if I just did a shameless plug again? Sure, go for it. Thanks. So my Edinburgh Fringe show is called Big Wendy. And it's on every day apart from Wednesdays at 12.40. Just search Big Wendy, Ed Fringe, and you can find the page. I'm also uh, on Wednesdays in the evening, Rachel Ann clark my comedy wife and myself uh, are bringing our monthly comedy night that we run in glasgow to edinburgh for three nights only uh, called the salon and again if you just search the salon and ed fringe you can see what we're up to um we've got a different headliner each week so we've got helen duff on the 7th chris weir on the 14th and caitlin durante of the bechdel cast uh on the 21st and we're stoked about every single one of them so yeah i i, I promise it will go back to uh more English self-deprecating and uh, <laughs> celebrating other culture beyond me trying to push my own stuff into the pool next time, I promise. Thank you. Cool. I am going to recommend uh, a movie from 2016 that I watched uh, just recently and I've been recommended a lot over the last couple of years and I finally rented it and it's called Shin Godzilla, which is oh. the what, like 70th Godzilla movie or something <laughs> like uh but uh, it's, I think it's like the number 38 or 39 or something it is directed by uh Hideaki Anno or co-directed by Hideaki Anno people probably best know for creating Neon Genesis Evangelion and is a kind of live action Godzilla movie very much in the style of you know like all the Toho movies but what's really great about it other than you know the fun of of watching Godzilla smash up Tokyo is that it is a satire of Japan's response to the Fukushima nuclear disaster and the tsunami and that kind of came along to that it's very much about mid-level bureaucrats kind of trying to shift the blame for a you kind of like a disaster hitting Tokyo but also the the that same bureaucracy being completely un uh, completely incapable of reacting to a huge disaster and it is it's very entertaining you know as as a lot of Godzilla movies are it's fun watching kind of someone in a rubber suit go around smash things but it is also very very sharp in its critique of the Japanese society of the structures in place that make it difficult to respond to 
things that genuinely impact people's lives and it is it's just really really entertaining a, a tremendously fun watch and i i really recommend it to anyone who certainly anyone who's seen any of the godzilla movies i think this is one of the best ones but uh, if you're not massively familiar with with godzilla i think it's a pretty fun uh, entryway to it because even though it's the, the 38th or 39th or whatever it is it's pretty much like a reboot you know godzilla appears for the first time in it uh it's a, a world in which japan hasn't been constantly leveled by <laughs> nuclear monsters for decades and uh, i think it's really really fantastic sounds amazing if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fm uh, spotify all the usual places you can find us are uh, please uh, rate us review us and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me bye